Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Christy Lefteri's novel, The Beekeeper of Aleppo, became an international sensation on its release in 2019. Inspired by her experiences at a volunteer centre in Athens, where she helped Syrian and Afghan refugees, Christy felt compelled to tell the stories of the people she met there. The Beekeeper of Aleppo has now sold more than half a million copies and by the end of 2020 was the third best-selling paperback of the year. Christy has been nominated for a British Book Award and the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and won the Aspen Words Literary Prize. Her drive to influence change through her writing led to another novel, Songbirds, about the experience of human migration and the search for a better life. It is published in July and it is as devastating and beautiful as The Beekeeper. Christy recently won the Nielsen Gold Bestseller Award for over 500,000 copies sold of Beekeeper. Congratulations, Christy, and welcome to our podcast. Hi, thanks so much, and thanks for inviting me. Thank you for coming. Um, So let's talk more about your first book, The Beekeeper of Aleppo, by moving on to the first of your three things that you would change about the world so it's it's as it should be. Um, So you have said that, number one, refugees need to feel welcome in the countries where they settle. Um, We need to develop a sense of empathy and being able to welcome people. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about, first of all, your own experiences as a child of refugees and, and how that feeds into your storytelling? Yeah, of course. So um, my parents both became refugees after the war in Cyprus in 1974. Um, My dad was actually a commanding officer during that war. So I think he suffered a lot of trauma. Well, he definitely did. Um, I didn't really speak to him about it until actually the beekeeper of Aleppo came out. And I was writing an article for the Observer about transgenerational trauma and how trauma, especially when it's not spoken about, can be transferred into the next generation. As I was growing up, I felt that although my dad didn't kind of, he didn't talk about the war and his experiences, and my mum didn't either. It was there in their reactions. And so, for example, you know, my dad would would kind of overreact to something. And, you know, children naturally don't have the means to sort of question that kind of thing too deeply. So I think I ended up blaming myself about a lot of things. And it was only until years later when I went into um, therapy that I could kind of piece the jigsaw together and realize that a lot of the things that my dad was annoyed about didn't actually have anything to do with me. Um, But, you know, I think this is the thing with trauma that it can come out in different ways. And, and sometimes it comes out in ways that seem completely disconnected to the thing that's happened. So that's not to sort of blame my dad, or that's not to say that he was a horrible, bad person or anything like that. It's just sort of, it's just a way of kind of looking at, um, I don't know, a way of me understanding what some of my parents' reactions might have been during my childhood and that how that that was like completely entirely related to the catastrophe that they'd experienced themselves. So that was so much part of my life growing up. It was such a huge thing. So I was always interested in like displacement and how it affects people, how it affects how we treat those people that we love. So it might not be a huge trauma like war. It could be a different kind of trauma. And it's often the people we love the most that feel the impact of those traumas. 
So I yeah. think that's really why I, I've always been interested in writing about these kind of subjects. It's interesting as well that you you write you you're a creative writer you're a novelist but you also I think you're a psychotherapist as well so that you it's you know there's different kind of ways of understanding aren't there and it's really interesting that you come at it from those two very clear trying you know ways of trying to explicate and understand other people's stories it was it was psychoanalytic psychotherapy training for oh god it was a number of years and I worked as an honorary psychotherapist at the Gordon Hospital in Westminster so I worked with a lot of people that that had suffered from trauma um, but I no longer work as a psychotherapist so I think everything I learned while I was doing the training and while I was working at the Gordon has really helped me to understand the characters that I'm writing about and that sort of thing. Yeah, you say in the bookkeeper of Aleppo, um, in Syria there is a saying: "Inside the person you know, there is a person you do not know." Um, yeah, is this this idea that we kind of all carry our past with us? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and in ourselves too. Yeah. Um. So there's parts of ourselves that we might not realize that we actually don't know because it's so buried, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um. I don't know. I'll give. I'll go back to the example with my dad. After I wrote the beekeeper, and I wrote that article in the Observer, and I was I went for a walk, um, just to have a break from writing the article. And um, he said to me, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Oh, blah blah blah." I was writing this article, and I told him what it was about. He said, "Oh, that's interesting. What does that mean?" And I explained it. And as soon as I explained what it meant, he said to me, "Oh," he said, "The reason I never spoke about the war is because I wanted to protect you." Right. And he then, all these memories came out. This was for the first time ever. He started talking about all these people that had died, that he felt that because he was the commanding officer, he felt that he should have saved them. And, mm. and you know, all this stuff that just, I, I actually remember where I was. I was walking down Palmer's Green High Street, Green Lanes in North London, and I was outside the Red Cross bookshop. And I just stood there. And, and and the thing is, that's just an example, I think, of um, the quote that's in the book in the sense that there were all these memories just there inside my dad growing up. He'd say, he said to me on, during that phone call that, that after the war, he was thinking, like even now, 40 years later, he thinks about the war like every week. Mm-hmm. So imagine back then, 40 years ago, it must have been, he must have been drowning in it. So inside him was a person I didn't know. And I think that, okay, that's an extreme version because he had a lot of trauma. But I think that's the case with everybody. We've all got these kind of sides to us that are so buried. Hmm. Why do you think we haven't got better at welcoming refugees globally and in the UK? Oh, God, that's such a good question. And it's a question that I ask myself every day. Um, and I don't know if I have an answer for that. I think it's I, my my instinct is to say fear. Mm. Um, we hold on to fear, like I don't know the way that refugees are presented in the media. Not all, not all media, but you know, I think people get this sense that maybe that there's something dangerous, or there's something unknowable. There's something you know that there might be people here that are here in order to cause some sort of trouble. Or, and I think that it's it's like um, it's that distancing, it's that detachment, it's that putting people into 
those huge sweeping categories where you you don't we can't actually we forget that people are human just like us Mm. and I don't know if it's because like when I watch the news and stuff and especially before I went to um, Athens to volunteer there was a lot of sort of crisis imagery and a lot of kind of non-specific language even when the reporting was positive it was all very kind of um, there was something about it that didn't allow me to feel connected Um, and I think and I I think that's probably one of the reasons because there's a lack of that sort of real genuine connection between people you know everything's so fast you know we turn the tv on we turn it off you know it's it's like we can switch anything off it's switch it on facebook Mm -hmm. twitter blah 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 and there isn't that sort of like I don't know, like with a book or with a film or with a documentary where you're really going to sit with it and actually learn about people. And unless we do that, then fear just gets worse and worse and prejudice will grow. And so I think, I don't know, I mean, I've given a bit of a waffly answer because I don't really know the answer, but... I mean, it was a big question. That's, yeah. That's fair <laughs> yeah. I, I, think, I think there's something about othering, isn't there, where you, it's just easier to think that that is not my experience, so I don't... I can't, you know, I almost can't engage. But I think that's yeah. why storytelling and particularly the stories that you've told are such a powerful way. You know, you can bang people over the head with kind of polemic, but actually humanizing it and story- storytelling is like the most primal way of us communicating, isn't it? It's, yeah, absolutely. Know. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it's the best way to create, well, to elicit empathy, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah. actually, you said, Christine, something you wrote, you said other people's stories can help us listen to our own, which mm-hmm. I found very moving and, you know, very simple. But it's getting those people to a point where they're going to listen, linking yeah. back to the refugees, which is the hard part. Yeah, that I know. Yeah. And how, how? <laughs> and the question is how? Um mm. Well, the thing is, I think, you know, uh, thinking about the beekeeper, I've had a lot of messages from people where they've said to me, it's changed my mind about what I thought about refugees, which to me, that's, that's, wow, you know, I think, gosh, I remember when I was writing it, I thought, well, if I can manage to do that with one person, then that's one great thing that I've done. And actually, I've been, you know, to, to receive these messages and to see them in front of me, I think well that's that's something you know to to get people to listen to the stories so I think I'm lucky in the sense that the book has reached so many readers but then the question remains how do we get people to listen to other stories real life stories as well um and I think I don't know they just I think there just needs to be so much more out there how how has it changed your um sort of how has it changed your life I guess. The volunteering in itself that I did before writing the book, that already changed my life. Mm. And I guess that's why I wrote the book, because I couldn't stop thinking about the children and the people that I'd met at the centre where I worked. It just, I came back to the UK and I was feeling really guilty because I had my passport and I could come back. And I kept thinking about the children that were still living in the old airport that had been turned into a camp or the old school that was a camp or Pedion Duareos, which you'll recognise from the book, which is a park that had been turned into a camp. So um, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And that's the bit that really changed my life. 
And then I suppose the way that the success of the beekeeper has changed my life is that it's meant that it's given me an opportunity to write more, which is really all I want to do. I really want to write more because like I find all these things that I'm so passionate about. And ever since I was a little girl, when I get really overwhelmed with emotion or I get really passionate about something and I think, oh my God, you know, why is this happening? I just want to write about it. So, which is then what ended up happening with my next book, because I, I became really passionate about something else. And I thought, well, thank goodness that I'm in the position where my publishers want me to write something else so I can continue to write about the things I care about. Mm. And I think that's how it's changed my life. Like that for me, that's the most important thing. So you, you've just mentioned your new book, um, Songbirds. And mm. I, I, I think I read somewhere that you wanted to make a distinction through that book uh, between, you know, this kind of arbitrary classification of refugees and migrants and one is good mm. and one is less good. Um, yeah. So you tell the story of, a, of an economic migrant. Yeah. Um, what, what, what did you set out to do with, with Songbirds? Well, um, the thing is, I, I'll start, I'll answer that question by um, saying where the where the inspiration came from from the beginning was when I was on tour for the Beekeeper of Aleppo. I, often people would say something or ask me something like, um, you know, how can we get people to understand that refugees aren't like migrants that that they come because they have to come? And often that's well, that question always made me feel a bit sad because I thought, okay, you know, but there are so many other reasons why people feel that they have to leave their homes. And then shortly after that, um, I started, I was, well, I was informed by a friend. She sent me a newspaper article about these women in Cyprus and my family are from Cyprus. So domestic workers, um, five domestic workers and their two children that had gone missing um, and nobody would search for them because they were foreign. Mm. And um, I just started following this story and getting increasingly upset and increasingly angry because I wasn't surprised that nobody was searching for these women and the children because they were foreign. Mm. And that was what was making me angry, the fact that I wasn't surprised. And so um, anyway, I, I continued to follow the story, which, you know, ended up. being a very 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 sad events to follow Um, and um, I was saddened by it so much that um, I used that as my inspiration for my next um, novel and the songbirds so it's it's about migration but it's also about poaching Mm. Um, and the songbirds become a symbol of kind of the women that travel hoping to either find a way to to um, help their families or to find freedom, um, whereas in actual fact, they found themselves horrendously trapped in, in ways that are kind of unimaginable. I was curious about whether you think you would have written The Beekeeper of Aleppo had you not gone into therapy training or gone down that path. Probably not. I don't think I would, I don't know. Do you know, this is another question I've asked myself loads of times because I was in, I was in therapy while I was writing it. Um, I don't, and sometimes I say, I think to myself, if I wasn't in therapy, would I have been able to write it? Mm. I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know. I don't think so, to be honest. And the stuff I learned while doing that training as well about 
how kind of and even when I was working at the Gordon about how like so like with the character of Nuri about how his trauma manifests itself and how um, Afra's trauma manifests and I won't say too much because then it might kind of you know too many spoilers but um, I think no 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 I'm gonna mm. decide it feels like answer. it was like fate in a way yeah um, well, th- no, to be honest, um, when I when I realized that I didn't want to be a clinician and I stopped the training, I remember talking to my tutor. It was at the Lincoln Center. And, you know, and, sh- and I said to her, I'm going to stop the training. I don't want to be a clinician. I, it's definitely not something I've just realized I don't want to do it. But I did say to her, I really want to use what I've learned in whatever it is that I'm going to write. And so I knew I was going to return to writing. I just knew I wanted to. I didn't know what I was going to write at that point. But I even said to her, whatever I've learned, I'm going to use it. I've absorbed it and I'm going to use it. So I sort of knew I was going to use it. Yeah, it was like a wonderful stepping stone. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm going to move on to question two now. We could talk about your writing and inspiration for hours. But um, (laughs) the second way that you would change the world if you could make it the Mm -hmm. way you wanted it to be would be you say to stop taking so much from the environment. We need Mm -hmm. to extend our compassion to the environment. What do you mean by that? Well, um, this answer came directly from writing Songbirds because I was so kind of like engrossed in researching. So basically, I'll just tell you a little bit about the Songbirds and it applies to so many things, like so many things. Um, I think this, this is a good example. So in Cyprus and in other parts of Europe, there's a tradition and it's now become more than a tradition it's like a huge underground organization um, where people trap these tiny little songbirds which are called black caps they they trap other tiny birds too but black caps are, are very 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 sought after um, and what they do is they put so this used to be a tradition in Cyprus so Old men in the village, for example, used to go out and make these lime sticks, put them out on the trees and trap about 10 or 20 um, black caps to feed their families. So the birds, it's, it's still cruel, but it was it was a way of, you know, people, there weren't supermarkets and things back then. So it was a way of kind of hunting for food that was easy for them. So they'd, so they'd put the lime sticks up, the birds would come down and get stuck on these lime sticks and the more they tried to escape the more trapped they got so now what's happened is this has become such a huge 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 criminal organization that people and it's highly 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 illegal like if someone gets caught they'll be sent to uh, well they'll probably they'll definitely be a fine and maybe even a jail sentence and we're talking about I think the fine might be something like 20,000 or 30,000. So they're, they're putting themselves at risk by doing this in the first place. Um, so they go out and put out mist nets and hundreds and hundreds of these lime sticks and they put out calling devices. So what they essentially want to do is, is catch as many of these black caps of, as possible that are migrating from Africa to Europe or back again. So they stop these birds on their journey and catch thousands and thousands and thousands of them and they literally make a killing Hmm. (laughs) and Um, they sell these birds they sell them um it's basically what happens because they're illegal to sell so if you go into a restaurant and ask for each restaurant has its own code so let's say for example you ask for couscous 
um, they'll they'll know to bring you a big um, terracotta, um, I don't know, jug that's got like loads of songbirds inside. And 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 I, I mean, I went to a wedding a few years ago where they came out just before the bride and groom danced. And weddings in Cyprus is like a thousand people there. So um, I went to a wedding just before the um, bride and groom were about to dance. Um, the waiters came out with at least God my God, there must have been about 50 trays and each tray was huge and there were about 100 black caps on each one of these trays. So imagine how much, how many of those little birds were killed for this, for this particular one wedding. And I remember sitting there next to my brother and he got so annoyed. Um, and, you know, you know and, and the thing is, and I think this is my point, that that's one example. You know, there's, a, there's greed there's greed there. There's, you know, the people that are poachers, they want to kill as much as they can so they can make as much money as possible. There's just no, there's no respect for the environment, for, for, for nature, for these, for these tiny little birds. So I think that can extend to mm-hmm. so many things like battery farming, everything. There's so much. I just think we take too much. Mm. You know, animals take what they need. That's what's so distressing about the the way that the birds are. Tra- you describe the book, the birds being trapped in songbirds. Is it's not just the black caps. It's like all the birds. So oh my god, kestrels yeah. and owls, and it's kind of like troll troll fishing fishing. You oh say, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't really know about fishing, but you know how that like they yeah. just <laughs> sweep the ocean floor and see, and kill everything, take everything, everything. Mm. and and how inhuman, literally, that is. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's not saying, you know, and I'm not saying people should be vegetarian. I'm saying we should think about what we're taking mm. and how we're taking it, you know. And I think that's, that's if I could change anything, because I, I think I would, I would feel like I was being, I don't know, I think I wouldn't, if I was saying, oh, I, I would wish that everyone wouldn't eat animals, I think I'd be being a hypocrite because I'm not vegetarian. I just wish that we could be really compassionate and thoughtful about how we treat animals, how we treat the environment, um, what we take from the environment, what we take from this beautiful earth that we live on. Because otherwise, you know, we're going to end up having, we're going to end up destroying it and destroying ourselves along the way. Mm. And do you think it's going to change? Are you feeling quite optimistic? I don't know. I I didn't feel optimistic. Um, I guess the silver lining of COVID, if there can be one, um, is that we've all calmed down a bit. We've all paused a little bit. And I just hope that we can, I don't know, like I remember when this time last year when we went into lockdown and suddenly we could all hear the birds again. And it was like, oh my God, the world's Mm. gone quiet. What's going on? And of course we can't live like that forever, but I just hope that we've learned something and we can kind of take it into the future with us. Yeah, we hope so. I mean, in The Beekeeper, there's a lot of male violence and I'm wondering, I mean, when you, when we imagine a poacher, I imagine most people will imagine a male. Mm do you feel that men men should be leading the charge to kind of solve this issue or do you think it's going to have to come from women? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, in the story, it's Yanis that's poaching. Mm. He's a man. And he goes on a, he, he has his own journey of discovery where he has to 
kind of in a way find himself again as cliched as that sounds but you know he has to find the the version of him that could understand the world differently the version of him that was this linked to his past and his ancestors and his grandfather um I don't know I think I think people just have to come together I can't say whether it has to be men or women okay in the story it's Yanis and I mean, to be honest, when I did my research, I did not meet any female poachers. That doesn't mean they don't exist, but I personally didn't meet any female poachers. So, you know, it's a bit, I find, I think, oh, should I say that? But that, but that is the reality. I didn't meet any female poachers. <laughs> so in, in terms of your research, it'd be great to hear a bit more about, uh, obviously your parents, um, came over here you were brought up in London um, but like how much do you connect to their history and how how much does it feed into your identity a lot but not songbirds Mm. at weddings (laughs) (laughs) the Greek dancing Greek food or I should say Cypriot because Greek and Greece is slightly slightly different um it really really a lot um I, I went to Greek school um I speak Greek my first language was actually Greek and it's right. a it's a, it's the Greek that my grandma spoke, which is a real kind of slang village kind of Greek, which I love. Um, but when I go to Greece and speak like that, nobody knows what I'm talking about. Whereas if I go to Cyprus, they're like, oh my goodness, you know, you sound like how the grandmothers sounded back in the day. <laughs> and I love that I've got that and I've sort of <laughs> held on to it. Um, I just, I think like when I went to Greek school, we were taught um, a very specific history about Cyprus. Right. Um, because obviously it's an island that's still divided. You know, there's it's there's so much history, British colonialism and all of that. But, you know, I, I think my mum used to say to me, because it was very one-sided what we learned at Greek school. And my mum always said to me, the, the story is far more complex than what they're teaching you at Greek school. But she wouldn't expand. Right. Like she never said more. So I think what happened is that I, from her saying that, I, it really inspired me to research. So yes, I've got all the kind of normal stuff like the food and the dancing and blah, blah, blah. But I also had this passion to go and research the history of Cyprus. And I did that as part of my PhD. So I did a PhD where I wrote my first novel, the, A Watermelon and Fish in a Bible, which is actually set during the invasion of Cyprus in 1974. And what I wanted to research was the fight for independence against British rule um, in the 1950s and how that was linked to kind of nationalism and nationalistic ideals and how basically the Greek Cypriots shot themselves in the foot um, by wanting to join with Greece. And, you know, there was there were all these things that I researched and I learned and I understood about my heritage, about the past of Cyprus, about the links between Cyprus and um Britain, Cyprus and the Ottoman Empire, Cyprus and the Greek Empire. And there was and it helped me to learn so, so much about our world as well in general. Mm-hmm. So it started off with, you know, the normal things that children, you know, will become introduced to naturally, um, like food and dancing and that kind of thing. But then I I kind of went my own direction and decided to really deeply research these things. Hmm. And did you ask your grandmother about her experiences the same way that you questioned your dad and things came pouring out? Was there anything that you learnt? From my grandmother? Hmm. Well, my grandmother was a single mother um, in Cyprus 
when that was unheard of because my grandfather just got up and left one day. Um, and so I think I learned a lot from her in terms of what it meant. Like she used to work in the cotton fields and, you know, she was a proper working class um, single mother who was trying her best to bring up four children at a time where there were no single mothers. So there was no support. Um, so I learned a lot from her when it came to things like that and her experiences there and how and you know and how when the war started what it was like for her as a single mother with four children and what was she going to do and you know and hearing those stories and hearing her struggles um I think those stories really stayed with me she would talk about it um and I just realized what strength she must have had to to have been able to kind of as a refugee make that journey Mm. and as a single mother too do you know Um, whatever happened to your grandfather Yeah, I only met him once when I was five years old and he was dying of lung cancer. He came to London um, and he met somebody else and they, he lived in Archway and he was one of these people that sort of kept making money and then gambling it away and making it again and gambling it away. And when I met him, I went with my mum, just me and my mum to the hospital. I think it was a hospital in Archway. Um, And I was about five or six and I sat next to him on the bed and my mum, I remember this like it was yesterday. My mum was sitting next to me and he held my hand, not hers, and cried and told me he told me he was sorry. So I think he wanted to do that to my mum. He wanted to say those things to my mum, but he said them to me instead. And I was a five-year-old. I mean, I didn't know what was going on. Um, I just remember this very old dying man who was crying and holding my hand and apologizing. Wow. Mm. Did your grandmother know that you met him? Yeah, she knew. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. It's, it's entirely unrelated. So I'm just not <laughs> even going to attempt to segue. So I'm just going to move us to... <laughs> To your third thing that you changed um, yeah. to, to make the world as it should be, which I'm, I am fully behind, which is simply that we all need to slow down a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, and I think it's actually related to my first point and my second point, well, m- mostly my second point. Um, and it's, it's what I was talking about before, like before lockdown, I just felt like I didn't even realise there was another way of living. I didn't even realise that, I wasn't thinking about my neighbors or Mm. the people in my life as much as that. I just didn't even realize I was, it was, it's just after when lockdown happened and it was really frightening. And I, you know, there are a number of family members and things that died and, you know, it was a really sad, it's been a really horrible and sad time, but there's one thing. and, And that was the fact that we slowed down and I was able to say, okay, well, I am here and who else is here? And, you know, my dad had COVID and he he overcame it and so did his wife because my mom passed away. So my, my dad remarried. And, and, you know, I was able to kind of slow down and say, well, okay, I don't need to go to all these places. I don't need to rush around like a headless chicken. So I can give some time, some more time to people, some more time to thinking or just walking or just being. Listening you know, to the birds. Listening mm. to the birds. I know, but yeah, <laughs> I spent so, so many days walking around that park and I bought a puppy. I know, like, <laughs> so many people bought dogs. But hold on, in my defence, I was going to buy a dog before lockdown. Sure. <laughs> so, so many people they all in. say he was going to buy it anyway. <laughs> I was, I actually, <laughs> I 
actually have proof because <laughs> you've got a receipt <laughs> if you could see me now i would show you alfie because i would so love cool. to see alfie he's so cute what breed is he he's a havanese Oh, what is I the, do what not is know. That? I'm going to quickly they Google that when we Cuban, get They used to be Cuban circus dogs. They're really quite comical and he's just <laughs> great company. Um, but this is what I mean about slowing down and then mm. look like the environment. And do we, you know, people have started thinking more about their carbon footprints. And, mm. you know, I think people were trying to get everyone to listen before. And I think nothing was changing. And I... And then suddenly things were changing, but because of a bad thing like COVID. But I just wonder if there's a chance that we might be able to hold on to that, that thing, that slight, sl- slight, I don't know what, I don't know what to call it. Like a that deceleration. Slight, yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. I think hopefully, I mean, I think now, like I think about, I get really flustered with this, like one thing out of the house in my diary. <laughs> I'm so used to just being in a room at home um so yeah maybe that's a not a good thing <laughs> but I, th- I, th- I, ho- I hope you're right I hope that we all can develop a kind of slower pace especially especially in London it's you, you, yeah it's such a hectic kind of yeah treadmill that we all find ourselves and on. and pollution you know it would help the pollution it would help you know I think it would just help so many obviously mm. we don't want to be isolated and mm. trapped and locked down um but I just hope that we can learn something and just take it with us into the future mm. have you yeah. developed any socially unacceptable habits during lockdown <laughs> that you can disclose to us um I think yes but I don't think people realize just yet <laughs> <laughs> because because I think like when we come out of lockdown and people are like, oh, let's go here, I'm going to be like, nah, yeah. nah I, I really can't be bothered. <laughs> I just, yeah. I think, I think I will be more able to say no to things. Yeah. I don't know if that's socially unacceptable. I don't think that's socially unacceptable, but I think I'll be slightly less sociable. I think I've realized that my own company isn't as scary as I thought and mm. that I can actually chill, chill out for very long periods of time without getting bored. So I think there's yeah. going to be a pressure for people to go out though, because you can't really use the excuse that you've been out every night. <laughs> or, you know, you're really tired. You haven't been at home for ages. So. Yeah, but we can say it overwhelms us. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> to yeah, be yeah. overwhelmed. That's true. Shona, have you developed any habits that are socially unacceptable during lockdown? Um, I think my existing ones have just become enhanced. So there aren't any new ones, but they've just grown in regularity. <laughs> are we allowed to know what any of them are not at all oh okay <laughs> <laughs> what about you Catherine uh, like, I'm sure there are many I just can't I can't um think I, I, structured clothing is obviously terrifying mm. now um it's yeah. conversations involving more than one other person not not through the mediation <laughs> of a screen it's terrifying um yeah I just it'd be very odd to kind of to, to touch oh that sounds terrible to touch people and to you know have physically <laughs> this sounds bad this is this is more than oh, socially unacceptable this is illegal freedom isn't there I mean I, I had apple crumble and custard for lunch today and I mean <laughs> who does that you know it's just clear stuff out of my fridge and I'm like no one's Aww. looking but I love that. I would never have done that in normal life. No. And do you know what? I keep thinking, like, I was like, before you said about the apple crumble and custard, I actually had this thought and I thought, oh my God, what will I do? What will I do without peanut butter? <laughs> because it's, it's not like you can take peanut butter with you. 
No, it has to be crunchy though, Christy. We are yeah, really used to snacking, aren't we? We've snacked continually for 12 months. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. Not eating every hour or so is going to be very difficult. And I need to eat pita butter with a spoon out of the jars. You're not, you're not oh a savage. God. You use a spoon. Exactly. Or Nutella, but... Okay, I shouldn't really admit that, but <laughs> so th- those, yeah, those are bad habits that I've developed. And you're still teaching uh, creative writing as well through through lockdown. Yeah, so I teach. I've got an MA class at Bruno University, um, and the module that I'm teaching at the moment is called Planning a Novel. Yeah, so I have four students. Last year, for the same module, I had fifteen students. Wow. wow. Yeah, so you can see how COVID has really affected, yeah, yeah the numbers. Um, but they're an absolutely amazing class. And I feel like I learn from teaching as well. I, I still learn about my own writing and my own kind of, you know, because we do a lot of workshopping. So I get, I try and help my students to sort of understand how to, how to offer constructive feedback and how to accept it as well, mm. which is, which is something so important that I also need to kind of remember while I'm writing. And yeah, I think all good teaching should involve learning as well. Mm. Otherwise you're just the, guy that I had at university with a frill, frill shirt talking about himself you know that's not and <laughs> that's why I don't like poetry but anyway th- yeah it's it's, a, it's an exchange isn't it yeah definitely yeah um thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you this evening um, oh you're welcome yeah. I've loved um, talking to you guys good it's really good fun and so good best of luck with songbirds it's such a brilliant book I was thank you we might have to very... have you on to talk about songbirds I think oh that would be brilliant I'd love yeah. to chat to you all again it's been so fun brilliant thank you Christy and um yeah songbirds is out in July we'll look forward to re- you all getting a taste of it then thank you as it should be from Prima Donna.